Take your Bibles this evening. We're going to go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you left your place in there this morning, it should be fairly simple to find. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, looking tonight more specifically at what the response that Peter describes to Christ is. This morning, having examined Christ the stone in the light of the Old Testament prophecy, he is the stone that was laid in perfection, the stone prophesied to be rejected, the stone that can offer us a sanctuary in the difficulties and the trials of life, the stone that offers forgiveness, the stone that ultimately will conquer all of his foes. Starting our reading in verse 4, Peter writes, To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is that made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. The stone this evening is a dividing stone. The stone demands a choice. And just like any time we are given a choice, there is going to be a division. Some choices are less consequential than others. Burger King or McDonald's. Coffee or tea. Other choices have a much larger consequence the Chicago Bears or the Green Bay Packers, the Chicago White Sox or the Chicago Cubs. Some choices have more consequence. And when it comes to the stone, it is a choice of, am I going to accept this stone or reject the stone? Belief or disbelief? I think of the prophecy that Simeon gave to Mary in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was brought to the temple to be dedicated. He told her, Behold, this child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." The seniors a couple weeks ago were at the wilds. I won't ask John John to give us the theme of the wilds. But you're there and you hear quite often there are just two choices on the shelf. 
pleasing God or pleasing self. As Christ puts it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. We cannot live for ourselves. We cannot live for our desires and for our pleasures and live for Christ. I enjoy a good cup of coffee in the morning. Ask any of my students. I enjoy three or four cups of coffee in the morning. I also enjoy a good glass of chocolate milk. Chocolate milk is wonderful. But if I were to take that cup of coffee, which is wonderful, and the glass of chocolate milk, which is wonderful, and try to drink from them both at the same time, the result would not be wonderful. I would receive no satisfaction and just have a great big mess on my hands. And too often as Christians, that's how we view Christ, though. I'm saved. I know I'm saved. I have fire insurance. And now I can live my life the way that I please. That's not the picture that we see in the scriptures. In fact, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 14, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath. He cannot be my disciple. Choosing to follow the stone is a life of self-death. A life of not living for my pleasures. A life of not living for my desires. And because that's what following the stone means, many reject it. And Peter goes and he tells us in this passage of the rejection of the stone. First, we see the stone is rejected by Israel, by his own, the Jews, resulting in his death, of whom it was prophesied in the Scriptures that they would reject him, the stone which the builders disallowed. When he came the first time and was rejected. In Acts chapter 4, we see Peter having healed a lame man. The priests and the scribes and the Pharisees didn't like that very much. They wanted nothing to do with Christ. And when they called Peter in for questioning... And they asked him why he did what he did, how he did what he did. Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this impotent man, by what means he is made whole. 
Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Having healed this lame man in the name of Christ, Peter is being questioned by the priest. How did he do it? And just as a side note, what is Peter's response? He asks, am I seriously on trial for having done a good deed? Am I being judged for having done something good for this individual? Side note, as Christians, how difficult is it to do something good for somebody else? You know, get the coffee for the guy behind you in line at the coffee shop. Provide a meal for someone in need. Doing something good for them is a great way to have opportunity to then give the gospel, which is what this man needed more. And he tells them, Jesus, the same Jesus whom you rejected, whom you crucified, this is the one who enables us to do good for others. And even in this rejection that Israel gave of Christ, God is still being merciful to his people. On the small scale, there are still those of the house of Israel who are being saved today by accepting the Messiah. And on the larger scale, God is not done with Israel yet. If we look to the future, Romans chapter 11 Verses 25 through 27, Paul tells us, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of the mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. God still has a plan for Israel. And even though at this point Israel has rejected God and Israel is under the judgment of God, God is still merciful to them. But Peter tells us here in 1 Peter chapter 2, not just has Israel rejected God, but overall God, Christ, the stone, is rejected by mankind. Ultimately, and majoritively, by all those who refuse his offer of salvation. But unto those, which, unto them which be disobedient, he says in verse 7. Verse 8, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Those who are disobedient to the word stumble over Christ. And we may ask, over what do they stumble? When we think of Christ and we think of everything that we looked at about the stone this morning, a safe refuge, 
one that offers forgiveness, what could there be that could cause us to stumble? Some stumble at the person of Christ, offended by Christ himself. Some may admit that, okay, yes, Jesus was a good man, but reject the fact that he was God. Some stumble at his work, not understanding how Jesus could take sins away. How is that possible? Others stumbling at the very question of, why would God do that? Why would God demonstrate love to those who reject him, to those who hate him? Many others stumble at Christ's teaching. If I'm going to follow Christ, as he says, having to give up all, having to hate my father and my mother, and as young people, we're like, yes, I can do that part. But then we get to the part about having to hate ourselves, having to daily take up our cross, having to deny ourselves. We don't like that aspect, and if I'm going to follow Christ, that means I'm not allowed to have any fun. But in reality, Christ denies us no pleasure which is not sinful. Some stumble at the teachings of Christ that they are too humbling. To truly follow the teachings of Christ would destroy all self-confidence. It would destroy all of our self-made man mentality. If we can get a little bit stabbing at our American culture, it would completely destroy the American dream. Christ didn't come for us to have our best life now. Christ came so that we could serve him, humbling ourselves. Others stumble at the fact that the offer of salvation is too simple. There's nothing I have to do to redeem myself. I just have to take Christ at his word. That's too simple. There's got to be something that I have to do. And you look at the majority of world religions today, and all of them have that aspect of a works-based religion. The way that you please whichever deity you are trying to please, you must do good works, and hopefully your good works will outweigh the bad that you do. But with Christ, we recognize, I can't do good works. So I must put my faith wholly on what he has done for me. And some reject the simplicity of the gospel. Others stumble because of the lives of those who claim to be his people. Well, look at that church. There's a bunch of hypocrites there. There's a bunch of imperfect people there. Yes, there are. And if you go there, you'll add to it. That's okay. But when we look honestly at ourselves? Are we living the way that Christ desires us to live? I think of Acts chapter 11 verses 25 through 26, after Saul has been converted and he tries to go to the believers and the majority of them are like, wait a second, I don't know if we can trust this guy. He was just on the way to kill us. But you have Barnabas, 
goes to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The early church sought to be disciples, followers of Christ. And as a result, they were mocked and given the nickname, Oh, you're just a bunch of little Christs. In modern America, we have it different. We want to be called Christians without having to be a disciple of Christ. Without being a follower, but that's not the biblical picture. All those who are disobedient, all who reject Christ, stumble at the word of God. One man said, ah, what it costs some men when they come to die. If you oppose him, you will be the losers. He will not. Your opposition is utterly futile. Like a snake biting a file, you will only break your own teeth. Those who reject Christ will stumble, and it is dangerous to stumble one has said that a bridge is made to give us a safe passage over a dangerous river. But he who stumbleth on the bridge is in danger to fall into the river. If you're on a trail and you're not quite sure of your footing, you can stumble and fall. But just as we saw, even though Israel rejected the stone, even though Israel rejected Christ, God is still being merciful to Israel. Those today who reject Christ, there is still mercy available. Repentance is offered to all. But even though repentance is offered, there must be a caution given to those who continually reject and continually stumble. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1, we have the proverb given, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck and shall suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. The idea being if you're out driving and you see a sign that says, Road closed. If you're like me, you may think, I could probably still get through. And you keep going and danger, road closed ahead. Oh, I, I can still make it, you know. It's just local traffic only. I can, I can sneak through. They'll never know. And then you finally get to the last warning, road closed, bridge out. Eh, I don't need those warning signs. And then you get to the point where all of a sudden your car is no longer on a road because the bridge is out. And you can't wily e. Coyote or Roadrunner your way back to the safety. The destruction will be there. The stumbling implies the judicial punishment coming as the rejection of the Messiah. And there's a phrase in here at the tail end of verse 8. Even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. You know, there are some who would take this passage and try to say that what this means is God chooses some individuals 
to be without salvation and intends for them to stumble. That's not what Peter is saying here, however. That's not what this passage or any other passage in the scriptures teach. Rather, I think this would make it a little bit easier to understand. Those who are disobedient to the word are going to stumble. The stumbling is the natural consequence of disobedience. We can put it another way. It's the natural consequence of our action. The law of reaping and sowing. You reap what you sow. It's not that God ordains or appoints individuals to sin, but rather those who reject Christ are given up to the fruit of their own ways, according to the eternal counsel of God. In John chapter 3, verse 18, we see the words of Christ. He who believes in him, the one who accepts the stone, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Those who reject the stone are already living in the state of condemnation. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those who continue to reject him will ultimately suffer the wrath of the conquering stone that we saw this morning. But yet there's still mercy while we're still alive. While we're breathing, there is still the chance and the opportunity to accept this wonderful gift of the stone. And that's what I'd like for us to spend the rest of our time looking at this evening. The stone that is a quickening stone. To whom coming as unto a living stone. Christ the stone is not living merely in the fact that he was made human. But even greater, he has been made alive again. And just as Christ has been made alive from the dead, those of us who put our faith and trust in him, those of us who accept this living stone, are made alive because of our relationship to him. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, You hath he quickened. You, he has made alive. Who's the you? We who were dead in our trespasses and its sins. Why? Because God is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved. Having been made alive by Christ, we become partakers in his life. And we recognize that as believers, any life that we have comes only from our relationship with the living stone. As Galatians 2.20 tells us, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Have we been made alive by this quickening stone? Are we living as if we have been? Not only do those who accept, not only are they made alive, but this quickening stone is also a building stone. 
Ye also are lively stones, are built up a spiritual house. A reference here that Peter is giving to believers being built into a temple. Temples are known for the deity that they represent. In Ephesus, you had the great temple to Diana. If you go in ancient Rome, you see the temples to the various gods. Where those gods are worshipped and where the followers of those little g gods live for that little g god. As believers, we have been quickened and we are built together as a temple to the God. Is he being worshipped in our lives? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, Paul asked the question, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? The Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Don't you recognize that as a believer, we are God's temple and His Spirit lives in us? Are we living our lives in such a way that people can see the God whose temple we are? Or in chapter 6, verses 19, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price? So what should we do? We should glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are God's. The church, not the physical building, but the body of believers, is a building that is to be greater than any temple that has ever been built. And temples have two purposes. First, temples are built Godward, representing man to God. Presenting acceptable sacrifices to him. As our neighbors watch us, as our co-workers watch us, as our family watches us. Are we living lives that represent man to God? Showing what it looks like. And on the flip side, temples have a manward purpose. Being a representative of God to mankind. Are we demonstrating Christ by our life? As people view our daily life, our interaction with others, everything we do, whose temple do they see? Do they see a temple to self? A temple to politics? A temple to lies? Or do they see our lives as a temple to the living stone? A temple to God? Christ is the quickening stone. He is the building stone. Thirdly, he is the reconciling stone. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Before we're saved, before we accept the stone, before we are quickened by the stone, we can do nothing to please God. The prophet Isaiah tells us that all of our righteousnesses, all of the good that we think we can do, are as filthy rags. Why? Because we are the enemy of God. If we think about it this way, imagine the year is 1948. 
A small little nation in the Middle East has just been granted its statehood. The nation of Israel. Leader, world leaders from around the globe are there to celebrate. And then in the back, you see this individual coming forward, brown eyes, brown hair, a, a little half mustache, presenting to the prime minister of Israel a gift of flowers and chocolate. Perfectly good chocolate, no poison. Perfectly good flowers, no explosive device hidden inside of them. But imagine if Adolf Hitler were there to congratulate the Prime Minister of Israel on the statehood that Israel achieved. How would his gift be accepted? It wouldn't be. Not because the gift is bad, but because the giver is bad. And before we are reconciled to Christ, nothing we can do is acceptable to God. And yet Christ, the living stone, reconciles us to God. We are made to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. You read through the Old Testament law, and the Old Testament law is quite clear in its instructions for what offerings were acceptable and what offerings were not. What are these sacrifices that we can now give that are acceptable to God? We can show mercy. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, He hath shown thee, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God? Because Christ has reconciled us to God, we can give sacrifices that are acceptable, sacrifices of thanksgiving. As the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 50, offer unto God thanksgiving. In Psalm 107, 22, let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. We can offer sacrifices acceptable to God of humility and repentance. The sacrifices of God, Psalm 51, 17, are a broken spirit. Prayer that is acceptable to God. Psalm 141, verse 2, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Or when we think about acceptable sacrifices, maybe our mind goes to Romans chapter 12, where Paul beseeches us, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that we present our bodies, our entire being, as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart from sin, set apart to God, acceptable unto God. And the only way that we can present our bodies acceptable to God is because of the reconciliating work of Christ. This is our reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but rather be ye transformed by the renewing of our mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect 
will of God. Again, how can we offer these acceptable sacrifices only through the work of the reconciling stone? So are we offering the sacrifices that God desires? We cannot please God by doing something that his word forbids. As the psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I know that there is sin in my life, I see it there, and rather than confessing that sin, I want to hold on to that sin. Because that sin is more important to me than my God is. God will not hear us. But rather, when we confess our sins, John tells us, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Are we offering the sacrifices that God desires? He is our living stone. He is our quickening stone. He is our reconciling stone. For those who accept him, he is our precious stone. Verse 7, unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. This is a direct contrast to those who have rejected him. The word precious means highly prized and honored. And it is only in Christ that we find that true honor. Why is he a precious stone? Because as believers, we have recognized that we were once in a condition, in a state of life where we can appreciate his worth. To see the true value of food, one must go hungry. To truly recognize the value of clothing, one must be exposed to the cold winter's blast. To truly appreciate the value of medicine, one must be sick. To see the value of the Savior, one must recognize that we are lost. And when we understand ourselves as we truly are, the enemy of God, one who is going to suffer the just wrath of God because of our sins, it is only then that the Savior becomes precious. Seeing that we were poor, helpless, dying sinners, seeing that we had no merit of our own, Recognizing that unless someone intervened, we must perish. Is Christ precious to us? Is Christ precious to you? Do you take the time to recognize and to remember what he has done for you? When we do this, that should affect the way that we live. Recognizing because Christ died to give me victory over this sin, I will not continue in that sin. Recognizing as Paul does, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound as he talks to the Romans? 
The mindset of some believers being, hey, God's grace and forgiveness is wonderful. If God demonstrates his grace by forgiving me, how can I get more grace? By having more forgiveness. So let's keep living for sin. Paul says, absolutely not. God forbid that we should live that way. To you who believe Christ is precious. Today we have spent our time focusing on this stone. For those of us who have been made alive, is he actively our source of life? Living on a daily basis, are we spending the time knowing what he wants by spending time with him through his word? By spending time with him in prayer? For those of us who have been made alive, for those of us who have accepted this living stone, whose temple do people see when they look at our life? Do they see a temple to me? Or do they see a temple to the living God? For those of us who have been made alive, are we offering the sacrifices that are acceptable to God? Is he truly precious to us? Secondarily, do we recognize the fate of those who reject Christ? I hope this evening that part of this, as we looked at the fate of those who reject Christ, would do a stirring in our hearts for those who are our loved ones, our neighbors, our co-workers, recognizing their ultimate judgment as they continue to stumble over Christ, that the consequences of that rejection will be complete. Are we having that truth affect how we live among others, sharing the good news of the living stone with them? And third, if there is one here who is rejected in Christ still, who has never accepted this stone, may I plead with you to do not continue your life stumbling over Christ, but rather today recognize your need as a sinner and come to him. Father, we thank you for your son. As we've looked at today, it's our source of refuge, our source of life. God, may those of us who have accepted the gift of your son, may we live in such a way that demonstrates that to the watching world around us. Father, may you Renew the burden in our heart for those around us who are stumbling over Christ, who have rejected Christ. May we plead with them the good news of the gospel. Lord, if there is one here tonight or one who is listening who has 
not accepted the gift of your son. May they stop stumbling over him tonight and may they come to know him as their savior. And we ask these things in his precious name. Amen.